Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Those of you who uh, are from a church background and you know your way around, go ahead and pull out your Bible and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. A few things to talk through on our way there. ARCF's core values, we have four of them, are to connect in authentic relationships, to grow in Christian maturity, to serve God and others, and to go tell people about Jesus. Now, what if I told you that we have something right in front of our faces every day that allows us to pursue all four of these at the exact same time? It's one thing to say we have a certain ministry that kind of focuses on, you know, serving others. We have another ministry that focuses on connecting on authentic relationships. But what if we're doing something and it's already there? We don't have to start a new ministry of any kind. We're already doing something that affects all four and lives out all four. Would you believe me? What do we call it? Mowage is the correct pronunciation. Today we're starting a six-week series called The Divine Romance. You're going to find out as we go uh, why we're calling it that. We're going to spend six weeks talking about marriage. Namely, the controversial kind. Do you know what's a controversial kind of marriage? The kind that God had the audacity to tell us about. Isn't he a jerk? He thinks he, he acts like he created the universe or something. Now, I jest, but let's be honest. The most controversial way to approach marriage in our world is God's way. It just is. Okay? Uh, Some of you guys probably didn't like my utter pessimism, but I said last week or the week before, uh, some of us did not think we were going to stick around to watch America's behavior for her to turn into Babylon overnight. But when we see the book of Daniel, and Daniel is surrounded by people that do not love his God, do not fear his God... Here's a statue, bow down to it. And he's like, actually, I'm going to go into a window and pray three times a day where everybody can see me praying to Yahweh, and I'm going to cause a ruckus, right? Christian marriage, we are finding ourselves more and more in that position where Babylon has created an image and said, bow down to it, and Christians are just in a a, a tough spot. Well, seemingly tough spot. If you're comfortable being thrown to the lions, this is an easy decision. Now, some of you think it's superlative. Well, it is. Let's be really, really honest. Having your bakery go out of business, that hurts a little bit less than literally being eaten by lions. So are we as bad as Babylon? No. We, we have it. The church here in the U.S. has it a lot better than those of us who were in Babylon. But this is controversial. We're about to teach out of Ephesians 5. It'll be a miracle if I don't get assaulted in the parking lot like a pinata on Cinco de Mayo for what I am about to say and read, because this is so controversial in the 21st century Western world. So we're just going to do our best. The title of today's sermon is The Meaning of Marriage. This is ultimately what the cultural fight is about. Where does marriage come from? If there is a God who created us, who created male and female to equal and different parts and calls them together humanity, if that's true, then he has the rights to tell us what a husband is and what a wife is and how they should treat each other. 
But if we evolve from primordial sludge, who is the authority who can tell us what a husband is or what a wife is or what marriage is? Heck, what is a male? What is a female? We get to fight over all of these things if we are the luckiest apes. Right? If we evolve, there is no objective moral authority to tell us about these institutions. So by reading a book, claiming the book is holy, and that there is a Savior who bled and died on a cross to save sinners, we're just offending people left and right today. But that can be good for you. No one wants to hear their doctor say it's cancer. But nobody wants to have cancer and have your doctor lie to you with a smile on their face. So we are going to see, when I say the divine romance, we're going to see today, here's our first point, that marriage is a sign of Christ's relationship to the church. So you cannot teach on marriage biblically and not be constantly clarifying and repeating the gospel, that Christ laid down his life even to a cross. To what? To ransom his church back from the slavery we were in by our own willful rebellion against God. So, let's go there. Paul, an early church father, Ephesians 5. We don't have the time today, so I promise this text will offend you in probably five different ways, particularly if you're new to church or if you've never been to church. And I'm only going to get to dive in and explain one or two details, so you're just going to be very, very upset today. That's okay. Keep in mind, this is a Christian pastor talking to Christians. And I, I keep reiterating the context because if you're not yet sure what you think of Jesus, in a certain sense, this teaching is not for you. And here's what I mean. If you take the teachings of the church and go live them out perfectly without loving the God who came after you to save you and to woo your heart to him, if you adopt all the behaviors but don't actually love him, you became a really nice person on your way to hell. So these teachings are very dangerous. If you seek, as a man right now who has no fear of God, who has no reverence for Christ, you're like, oh, that's cute. I think he was a good Bible teacher, but that's it for me. But you think that there's some good nuggets in here, and so you try to love your wife really, really well, you could have an incredible marriage on your way to hell. Bible teaching about Christian ethics is directed at Christians for one reason. We've already been purchased back from the condemnation that sin brings. And so we now obey as the overflow of that extravagant love. Obedience is not for you if you're in rebellion against God. Obedience is for those who've been purchased back. Otherwise, obedience becomes a rat wheel. Have I done enough for God? Have I done enough for God? Have I done enough for God? Islam has you covered if that's what you want. If you want to reach the end of your life wondering whether you've ever done enough for God, Mormonism has you covered. Jehovah's Witnesses have you come. There are plenty of religions available for you if you want to reach the end of your life not knowing. Paul says this to a group of Christians at Ephesus 2,000 years ago. And further, so that tells us he's in the middle of a thought, right? So go study Ephesians on your own. And further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the most important sentence of the whole chapter because it is the capstone. This is going to tell us where all of his other ideas are supporting. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Mutual submission. Why? 
because we revere Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Did you feel your blood pressure go up, ladies? Wasn't that awesome? Oh, he said that. Mm. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of his church. He is the savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Verse 25. For husbands, this means, what's this? What's the this? Submit to one another, right? That's the, the, the foundational thought. Submit to one another. So how is a husband going to submit to his wife? This means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but feeds and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. And we are members of his body. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So again I say, each man must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Bible trivia time. Did Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, just spend more time instructing wives or more time instructing husbands? I have one vote for husbands. Which one was longer? Just, if you've got a paper Bible in front of you, look one's longer. Which one's longer? Like two to one. Two to one. So we've got to ask ourselves, is Paul a chauvinist? Paul's own discourse seems to reveal that he thinks we have more of a man problem than we have a woman problem. Modern egalitarianism says that for men and women to be equal, they have to be the exact same as each other. And Paul's going, I don't think they're the same as each other. He seems to think that we've got a man problem by the extent of his teaching and by the bomb that he drops. He does not tell a Christian wife to lay down her life for her husband. Is a Christian woman supposed to live out the righteousness of Christ and, and, and pursuing holiness? Of course. But in Paul's teaching about holiness, he tells the husband to lay down his life. So we've got to immediately wrestle with this one. Paul seems to be under no uh, qualms whatsoever about treating men and women differently in the way he tells us to submit to one another and the way he tells us to honor Christ. He's not even apologizing for it. So maybe Corinth doesn't have a super big problem with it. I'm sorry, Ephesus doesn't have a huge problem with it either. Corinth actually does. We're going to get to 1 Corinthians 7 in a bit. But here, translating this as best I can to a 21st century American culture, I feel the need to apologize left and right because our cultural assumptions are what? Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. No, you can't. Yes, I can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. A few of you love show tunes. Three of you are with me right now. That is the theology of the day. Men and women are actually in competition with each other, trying to compete over the exact same tasks. And what does competition reveal except that I don't feel equal to you? I don't feel sufficient. I feel trampled on in some way. I feel ignored in some way. I feel voiceless in some way. 
Either chauvinism creates a doormat of a woman, or secular feminism creates a doormat of a man. And the Bible does not allow for either of those. That's not equality. Equality has no doormats. There are no doormats with equality. So that first blank, as I said, marriage is a sign of Christ's relationship to the church. It's a sign. And weird as it sounds, this is actually a one-point sermon today. This is the only point. Everything that we are going to say is a branch off of this today. Okay? So, really difficult trivia question for you. Is this sign Fairbanks, Alaska? Is Fairbanks, Alaska made of metal, mostly green, with white letters, rectangle, posted up next to a highway? It's, it's nonsensical to us. We know that a city is a city. It's a collection of people and where they live and where they work and where they do life. And when we're driving down a highway and it says Fairbanks, well, hey, of course that's Fairbanks, right? It says it right on there. It has to be Fairbanks. No, it doesn't. It's also not the North Pole. It's not Delta Junction. This is something that by the essence of what it is points to something beyond itself. Are you guys with me? Say yes. This is, well, you don't get too excited. This is about to hurt. Marriage doesn't terminate on itself. Marriage does not exist for marriage. It doesn't exist to make you happy, primarily. It does not exist to create children. It doesn't even exist as the cornerstone of society. Paul just said, if you love Jesus, your marriage is pointing to the way Jesus treats his bride. End of discussion. And if that's what marriage is, I just lost a lot of my hard-held opinions. Because I thought marriage was this, and I thought marriage was that. Has anybody, well, it probably has happened, but as a general rule in the United States, when you meet with a divorce attorney, and they say, hey, what's the reason that it's not working out? And you say, you know what? I was laying down my life for my wife, and I was working so hard, and yet it just somehow it never brought Christ glory and so since Jesus didn't get his glory, we, we decided we're done. Your attorney would fall over if, if he or she heard that answer. Like, that's just not, right? It's conflict. We, we don't know how to get past our issues. Somebody lied to us, and, and we forgot we were marrying a sinner, and we forgot our spouse was marrying a sinner. Think about that one. Anyway, there are other reasons... There's betrayal, there's abuse, there are reasons. But I, I just highly doubt that the main reason is people going, man, we, we, we tried so hard to glorify Christ, and it just wasn't working out. No matter how much we loved each other and submitted to each other and served each other, loving and serving my wife, doing the dishes when she didn't expect, you know, taking care of the kids two hours longer right after I'd lost it, you know, like just laying down your life for your family, it just it wasn't working. That's probably not where we're at. That's probably not where we're at. It is a sign pointing to what? Christ's love for the church. Second blank. And this, the rest of this is which means. Marriage is a sign of Christ's relationship to the church, his love for the church, which means. Marriage is a way to glorify God. It's not the only way. Did you know that? Back to Paul. 1 Corinthians 7, 1-9 
Now listen to this. I don't even get to dive into all these goodies. We're just going to talk about one thing in this. Now regarding the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations, but because there is so much sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs. The wife should fulfill her husband's needs. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. Wife, does that sound scary? We've got to be honest with the text. What scares us? Treating your body like it belongs to your spouse. That's scary depending on what your personal experiences and background are. That's a very, very vulnerable place to be. It could be a terrifying place to be. It may be a place you're not able to go. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband. The husband, wait for it, gives authority over his body to his wife. Does that sound fair? So it's terrifying, but it's terrifying in both directions. There's a huge, breathtaking amount of trust in sexuality. This is why the church says, do not do that with anybody who is not in a covenant marriage with you. Please, please, please. We're in a culture that will just sleep with anybody. We have no idea. Um, It's like Frodo putting on the ring the first time. Like You have no idea the power of what you're engaging with right now. You think that sex is just about pleasure, and because you think it's such a small thing, you engage in it casually. You have no idea. You're about to open Pandora's box. It is so intimate and so powerful, and it's a good thing, but it's a good thing for a certain context. Verse 5, do not deprive each other of sexual relations unless you both agree to refrain from sexual intimacy for a limited time so you can give yourselves more completely to prayer. Anybody feel judged and condemned by that verse? Yeah, I do that all the time. I'm so holy. I'm like, honey, I know you uh, came home and there were roses and you popped in the Marvin Gaye album, but I'm just so... Two of you are with me. I got to work on my illustrations. But I'm just so deeply in prayer right now. You know, can we wait a week? I just have lots and lots of praying to do. So that verse has always convicted me. Like, anyway. But apparently it's a thing. To focus more on prayer, abstain for a little while. Afterward, you should come together again so that Satan won't be able to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. That's fascinating because I thought sex was about desire. And he just said sex is about fighting sin. He said it earlier. Look, I think it'd be great if you guys were single like me. We're facing a lot of persecution. People are being tortured and killed right now. And if you could be a single guy so you don't leave a wife and kids behind in the middle of this persecution, I think that would be optimal. But he says what? He sense there's so much sexual immorality, go ahead and get married. What? Have we ever pondered marriage as fundamentally less than whether or not God's getting his glory? Because when we call ourselves a Christian and we are sexually immoral at the same time, we are dragging Christ's name through the mud. And, G- and Paul says, I know how to fix it. We'll get you guys married. When? Uh, I don't know. I'm licensed. Let's do it right now. We think that marriage is this thing. And I have to plan a really big expensive ceremony a year out. And I'm going to throw something. Okay, here's the word of God. Here's the authority. I'm Greg's opinion. Greg's opinion is hanging out right here. Leave it alone. If it's, if it's baloney, then just leave it alone and forget it. I think that if you love this person and you are sexually attracted to this person and you do what a lot of brides do anymore, you do a year-long engagement, 
how on earth are you guys going to not give in to temptation in an entire year? We had godly people, Emily and I, we were originally planning what was going to be about an 11-month engagement, and we had loving, older, wiser people press in on us and go, if you know this is what God has for you, then what are you waiting for? And they said it nicely, but what they were also saying is, there's a breathtaking amount of temptation in your life if you know this is the one you're going to commit to. You're playing with fire. If you know this is the person and you have said with your whole heart, I am a Christian and my sexuality belongs to Jesus, and you're going to marry this person and you set the date out a full year. I get it. There's stuff going on. You've got a guy who's deployed in Japan or whatever. There are things, there are reasons. But if you are physically together in the same space, you could be absolutely playing with fire. That's just Greg's opinion. We're going to leave it right there. It's kind of echoing what Paul said. Since there's so much sexual immorality, just get married. This behavior is not sinful in its context, so create the context. Go for it. That's crazy to us. We think we're out there trying to find the mythical one. Whereas it sounds like God says, yeah, the one is the one you made the commitment to. You make that commitment and keep that commitment. That's the one. Good luck. You found her. <laughs> Christians, Use your whole self to serve Jesus. Use your whole self to serve Jesus. So we see in that 1 Corinthians 7 text, we're talking about singleness being used to glorify God and marriage being used to glorify God. That's why I said marriage is a way. It's a picture of how Christ loves the church. But Paul says, my singleness allows me to serve with fewer obligations. So what we're supposed to get out of this is the phase of life is secondary. Serving God is primary if you're a Christian. Will I use my singleness to honor him, or will I use my marriedness to honor him? Christians, use your whole self. Are you white-collar, blue-collar, no-collar? Rich, poor, employed, unemployed? Use your whole self. A parent, not a parent. Grandparent, not a grandparent. A good neighbor, a lousy neighbor. Eh, become a good neighbor. Whatever you are, you use your whole self. That's the ethos of 1 Corinthians 7. The ethos is, don't sin. If you call yourself a Christian, take your sexuality and give it fully to the Lord. So a single person offers their sexuality to God in a certain way. You're choosing celibacy in advance. If you're married, you're taking your sexuality and you're offering it to Jesus. My sexuality is to love and honor my spouse inside this context as a picture of unity of Christ and his church. It's a very theological bedroom, isn't it? That's why I say this is sacred. We have no idea what we're playing with when we have sex casually outside of its context. There's something much bigger going on. Or if you're not sure what you think of Jesus yet, I want you to know this. Loving Jesus, Jesus with one's whole self is more important than anything. I've kind of already preached this point. And I want you to see this. When you see a Christian pastor in 1 Corinthians 7 talking to a bunch of Christians and speaking about marriage like it only exists to serve the glory of God, and there are no other factors in Paul's mind, isn't that the breathtaking part of 1 Corinthians 7? If you feel it, if you think it works out, if you guys live together for a while and he learns to put the toilet seat down, and you're like, oh, I can change him. You know, like, no, that's not... No, 
it's actually not that. Since there's so much immorality, go ahead and get married to protect yourself from sexual immorality. Wow. That is a totally different worldview. And so if you're kicking the tires of the Christian faith, I want you to see this. This is the truth that the Bible puts forward, that God is God, he's the center of the universe, and a Christian's life, we're just trying to get on board. We're just trying to get on board with him and how he designed the universe to be, believing that our Father loves us more than we love ourselves. And so the way he designed manhood and womanhood and sexuality and marriage and money and neighborhood relationships and workplace relationships and whatever else, that the way he designs those things to work will give us greater joy than my own ideas. So I want to talk about a book. Some of you guys got the email on Thursday, if you're in the database and if you open email. Really incredible book called The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller and his wife Kathy Keller. I have so much respect for this couple. These are, these are really cool people. and I don't have the time to tell you their story. But I do want to say this. God has so much to say through his word about marriage that to only avail yourself of six sermons over these next six weeks, uh, I just want to challenge you to more. Especially if you're feeling it right now, like, God, you've got something for me. I am single, and you want me to understand this better for whatever reason. I'm single again, and you want me to understand this for whatever reason. I'm considering getting married one day, and I want to understand this better. I am married. I probably should have read this book five years ago. And, you know, whatever, right? Maybe you're up there in years, and you're in a phase of life where you need to be teaching us young bucks about marriage, and you need some ideas. You need some meat on the bone to help you in your teaching ministry. Please get this book. If you're Amazon savvy, you're two clicks away. Go ahead and buy it right now. But we bought 15 copies and put them at the back. We found them for seven bucks a piece. Hallelujah. So if you are a cash or check kind of person, I've got a little bucket there. Please just pick it up, take it home. Uh, you can make a $7 donation on Breeze and pick it up. Bring money next week. We'll make sure to have copies next week as well. Over the next six weeks, if you want to supplement these sermons and journey with Christ and say, Jesus, please teach me what marriage is. Teach it to me down in my bones. This book is an incredible way to do that. A second implication of marriage being a sign of Christ's relationship to the church. Well, this. This means that when a Christian man is rude, disrespectful, or unloving to his wife, he is telling a lie about Jesus. Did you guys know that? If Christian marriage is a proclamation to a dark world of this is the love of Christ, then those of us fellas who call ourselves Christians and we are married, when we fail to love our wife, we are lying to the world. It is perverse evangelism. Right evangelism tells people rightly who Christ is. Perverse evangelism is lying to the world about who Jesus is. I talked earlier about secular feminism on one end or chauvinism on the other. No one should ever be a doormat. If you call yourself a Christian and you are disrespectful to your wife, we've got problems, brothers. We've got problems. I'm not even thrilled if you're not a Christian and you're disrespectful to your wife because your wife's an image bearer. And God deserves better than that. No woman should be treated that way. 
But when you treat your wife poorly, and you have the audacity to call yourself a Christian, big, big problems. Christian husbands, love your wife. You see how that's a verb, and not a feeling? All the Disney characters you could muster could not understand that sentence if they tried. It sounds like it's an action. In Ephesians 5, this is laying his life down for her, so we know with Jesus what that was. He lays down on his own cross. That's hard to make a cute Disney song about when the guy is getting murdered to save the girl. It's hard to be cute and peppy about. And in our entertainment-addicted culture, in our culture that is addicted with a facade of happiness where we bury anger and bury sadness as much as we can, the truth of what marriage is is a Christian man laying down his life every single day for his wife. That's what it actually is. Does that mean, Christian husbands, that you are always going to be miserable? It's a good question, right? It's fair. Are you going to always be miserable? I don't think so. Have you read the book of Acts? They never had more joy than laying down their life for their Savior, laying down their life for each other, selling their possessions to meet the needs of those who were poor. There is no greater joy than obedience. We tend to get trapped. When we ask ourselves, why did Jesus die? We get trapped in the two biggest, clearest answers, and we neglect at least a third answer. We say rightly, Jesus died to save sinners, and we say rightly, Jesus died for the glory of God, to honor his Father who sent him to save the world. Those are the two big answers, but there's a third one in Hebrews that's a really big deal. The author of Hebrews says, for the set before him, joy. For the joy set before him, scorning the shame. So Jesus saw the wrath of God that was about to be poured out on him through this cross. And he could see past it. He could see that on the other side was all the joy that comes from honoring the Father and obeying the Father. All the joy that comes from ransoming rebellious children for the express purpose of putting the love of God the Father on display to unseen powers, making angels hold their breath. There was joy waiting for Jesus on the other side of unbelievable pain. So that means that when a Christian husband is called to lay down his life for his church, this is not without joy. In fact, it's the only way to joy. It's the only way. This is how a Christian man finds joy in his marriage. He lays down his life. This is the path. Selfishness isn't going to do it. That'll find short-term happiness and probably a divorce. Christian wives, please praise your husband's efforts to love you well. Praise your husband's efforts to love you well. Uh, I'm reticent to tell the ladies what to do and how to do it, but this is, this is more of a pleading. Just knowing how my heart responds to Emily's words. Um, I said to the first service that if you're out camping and it's late at night 
but everyone's having fun and making s'mores and you want the party to go a little longer, the fire might need to be stoked. And you look at the fire and there's just this tiny little flame and some hot embers over on the right-hand side and the rest of it has died out. Mostly, if you're taking a snapshot of this fire, you'd say the fire has mostly died out. This is a lousy fire. It's not enough heat to roast the marshmallow. And you could complain and you could condemn the fire for being mostly lousy or... You could go over to the side where the embers are hottest and you could gently blow and add some fuel. There are Christian women in this room. Your Christian husband is failing at 80% of his attempts to be a godly man, to be a godly husband, to be a godly father, godly grandfather, whatever your role. A lot of the Christian husbands, when we fail, we actually already know we're failing. And we put on a brave face. And we try to hold it together. And I want you ladies to know how powerful your words are. If you will praise him for the one or two things that you do see where he's really trying to serve you, you can bring the whole campfire back to life with a little bit of praise. And I know that's hard. You want to, you'd be right in saying 80% of the campfire is dead. You'd be totally right. I didn't say this to the first service, but I, I think I could stand on this one biblically. Ladies, your husband needs encouragement from you, and when he needs rebuke, he needs it from the men of the church and the elders. I don't know how else to put it. Study sociology and tell me that men don't respond better to men when we have to be tough, when we have to put on our football helmets and, and deal with each other. Bro, I heard the way you spoke to your wife. That's no bueno. Firm rebuke. You ladies know how hard it is trying to push back on your husband's poor behavior at times. My poor wife, she tries to deal with my sin. Oh, I feel terrible for a Christian wife when you try to push back rightly. I don't know if it's male arrogance. I don't know what it is. But we need other guys to get in our face and to be the voice of correction, teaching, and rebuke. We tend to respond better to other men. I can't prove it. I mean, the scriptures do say, let the men teach the men how to love their wives. So maybe it was there for us all along. But Christian women, you're married now. You hope to be married again one day. I know it's hard. I know you want to fix. I know you want to correct. Allow the men to do that as much as you possibly can. I know you can't always do it. Sometimes things have gotten really bad and you need to leave a dangerous situation. Sometimes things have gotten really bad and you need to call the police I'm in full support of all of that if, that if those powers need to be involved. But if this man calls himself a Christian and he's under submission, we're going to talk a lot next week about a man being under submission before he asks for submission. Allow the men of the church to gently encourage and rebuke and teach and correct this man. Another implication that marriage is a sign of Christ's relationship to the church means a Christian husband does not love his wife because she deserves it. Imagine Satan's capability to whisper into Jesus' ear when he's on the Mount of Olives. You want to ransom a people to yourself? Look at the way they're treating you. They're about to cry out, crucify him. They're going to say that to you. Why would you die for them? 
Satan have an argument? No. Satan's playing the game by the wrong set of rules. He's wrong. God dies for sinners because of who God is, not because of who the sinners are. He did not stand in front of Pilate and say, you know what, Pilate? If I answer a certain way, it's going to go this way. If I answer another way, if I'm silent, it's going to go another way. Let me hold off for a second. Let me see if everybody out there in the crowd can get their act together morally. And when they are loving and serving me the way they ought, then I'm going to make my decision to, to die for them. That didn't happen, did it? We shouted out, crucify him. And he died for us. So Christian men, do not wait for your wife to be worthy of sacrificial love. Worthiness has nothing to do with it. Not if your relationship is to be emblematic of Christ's love for the church. In fact, maybe the man who lives next door to you, your neighbor, maybe he is this close to faith. And he will come over the edge as soon as he sees extravagant love on your part toward a wife who doesn't deserve it. Maybe that undeserved love is exactly the illustration that the man next door needs or your coworker or your brother needs or that your mom or that your sister needs to see to finally get the breathtaking love of Jesus toward his church. Romans 5, starting at verse 6. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed his love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. He did not wait for us to get our act together. So, a few implications. If you're a guest today and you're not sure what you think of Jesus, none of us are entitled to God's love. None of us. But we get it anyway. None of us are entitled to God's love. I know this is super controversial in our world. We, um, from the fundamental assumption that I am morally good, I'm going to have all kinds of entitlements. But if you'll embrace that God says, no, you're not good, that's hard to embrace. We don't like to embrace it, but it actually makes a lot of sense. If we look at a cosmos as broken as the one that we have, wars, rumors of wars, rape, murder, then we find the Genesis 3 account to be more believable. Maybe humanity did rebel against their creator. Maybe humanity did unleash all of this. And with that rubric, we see that we are the enemies of God and he dies for his enemies. Wow! So then it takes all that entitlement baloney away. I wasn't entitled to his love. I got it anyway. If I was entitled to Christ's love, his love wasn't that exciting or that loving. Do we really? Ooh, if we're entitled to the love of God, God's just not that great. He's an employer who gave us exactly what we earned at the end of two weeks. God, you owe me heaven because I'm kind of awesome. The higher I go in my own eyes, the lower God goes, period. 
They are mutually exclusive. And so if you're kicking the tires of the Christian faith, I'm begging you to consider maybe, just maybe, there is a God and you've done something wrong. And once you can admit that you've done something wrong, you can properly analyze this death on the cross. Wait, he died for me while I was in his enemy. Wow. That's the breathtaking love of God. Not that he died for good people, he died for bad people. If you love Jesus and you're a husband, allow your reverence for Christ to replace your excuses. This excuse of, oh, she doesn't deserve, you know, she said this to me, so I'm not going to love her. She did this, so I'm not going to love her. These excuses. The top of the Ephesian text said, submit to one another, what? Out of reverence for Christ. So none of this has to do with her behavior. None of this has to do with your behavior. Or who's worthy of what? All of this is a direct response to your reverence for Christ. To my reverence for Christ. So, here's the bad news. Are you ready? Well, if you're not a Christian, you're fine. But the Christians, here's some bad news. Christians, bad news. The state of our marriages are where they are because we do not revere Christ. That's what that actually means. The state of our marriages as a whole are an arrow pointing to our reverence or lack of reverence for Christ. Because he is why we marry. He is why we do marriage the way we do. And to sin, to not love and serve my wife, is a reflection that I'm not revering Christ. Ladies who are married and call yourselves Christians, this doesn't mean treating your husband's love cheaply. Christians do this all the time. Once we are convinced, and we should be, of God's love for us, in the heat of the moment when we are tempted to sin, we just go, well, God's going to not, he'll not ever stop loving me. He forgave me of my sins, right? That's one of Satan's favorites. Whisper that one in your ear. How are you supposed to hear that God loves you and think that Satan is speaking to you? Satan will tell you about the love of God all day long. If you already believe in God's love, he's going to remind you of God's love and that that love will never go away. He is a covenant keeper. So go ahead and treat that love real cheaply. Go ahead and sin. And now Christian husbands are called to love their wives sacrificially the same way Christ loves the church, and there will be an opportunity to sin. Well, I I can speak abusively and disrespectfully to my husband because he has to take it. He has to keep serving me. He has to love me as Christ loved the church. We Christians do this all the time. We treat Jesus poorly when we are not filled with the Holy Spirit. Our Bible has gotten dusty. We're not in a group of men and women who will encourage us and call us higher to a greater affection for Christ and for those around us. We'll start treating Christ cheaply. Ladies, don't do that to your husbands. Last implication for today. Christian husband must be a servant to his core. A Christian husband must be a servant to his core. Philippians chapter 2. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. That's a continuing tense thing. He already has equality with God. Co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. He didn't hold on to it. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. 
and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Is there anything more humble than that? Is there any higher place than to be seated at the right hand of your father? Is there any lower place than being on a Roman cross? Big distance. Therefore, what does therefore mean? So because of that, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the names, name above all other names that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Husbands, you want God the Father one day to exalt you. You want heaven to rock. You do. There's nobody who doesn't want heaven to be awesome. But you and I, if we're Christian husbands, if we're going to be a Christian husband one day, the way up is down. We humble ourselves now. We serve our wives now. Single men who call yourself Christian one day when you have a wife, you serve her. You get into your skibbies, you wrap a towel around your waist, and you wash feet. Jesus said this broadly about leadership in the kingdom. Listen, in my kingdom, the last will be first. The first will be last. A Christian husband must be a servant to his core. When you cut me, what do I bleed? Christian husbands, do we screw this up all the time? Yeah, we do. So it's a good thing we've got a loving father who will pick us back up, dust off our hindquarters, and encourage us to keep going. Keep loving your wife. You keep loving your wife. You keep loving her. Those of you who are single or single again, here's your practical application question. Will you put your singleness to work for God's glory? God gave it to you. If you're a Christian, will you use it for God's glory? That's what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. He was almost showboating. He's like, look, I'm single you preached five sermons this week. I preached nine. Because I didn't have to be at home by a certain time. I'm single. He doesn't give the specifics of what it looks like. He just says a single person is able to serve the Lord with a more whole heart. A married person is divided. I honor, the God, honor God in certain types of ministries here, and I honor God through my marriage. There are multiple ways that a married person is honoring God. But the point is, whatever life circumstance a Christian finds himself or herself in, it is to God's glory, his praise, to make Jesus famous. Do you view your singleness as an opportunity to serve God? Would be another way of saying it. Those of you who are married and you're Christian, will you put your marriage to work for God's glory? We tend to be really good at putting our marriage to work to try to find happiness. That's easy. Be focused around happiness. I want to be happy, want to be happy, want to be happy, want to be happy. Will I put it to work as a proclaiming device? Will I treat my marriage as a continual ongoing sermon? To anyone who watches how I treat my wife, am I willing to treat that relationship as an ongoing sermon? If you're not sure what you think of Jesus, this question's for you. 
Now that you've been told Jesus died and he died for your sake, what will you do with his love? What will you do with it? If you're on one end, I absolutely believe it. That's weird. I didn't believe that 40 minutes ago. Okay, I lied. 50 minutes ago. I find myself believing that Jesus Christ is all who he said he is. The Holy Spirit just changed your heart. You're a Christian now. Welcome to the family of God. If you're on the other end, this is nonsense. My neighbor kept inviting me to church. I came today to get him or her off of my back. We love you no matter what you believe. And if you're somewhere in the middle where you're going, that is oddly compelling. I don't think I believe it, but that is really interesting. I've never heard all that stuff from Ephesians 5 before. I've never heard of that about what Christ's love for humanity looks like, you know, and what that. I want to encourage you to grab a Bible if you don't already have one. Take one. It's our gift to you. I want to encourage you to read through the Gospel of John. It's a book that we are preaching through little bit by little bit. But I want to encourage you to study for yourself and see for yourself who Jesus is. That's my encouragement to you. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to be dismissed. Lord Jesus, those of us who are Christians, we confess, God, that our sins are piled up in the area of marriage. Jesus, those of us who are Christian husbands, we confess, God, we have failed to love our wives a thousand different ways. But we're asking for your help. God, we're asking for your encouragement. Jesus, we ask that you'd give a heavy dose of grace to the Christian wives in the room. That they'd be as gracious as Jesus is at the same time that we men try to be as loving as Jesus is. Um, such a hard task, God, and we don't, we don't have our act together. You do. You know how to do all this, God. God, as a church family, we take all of the marriages and future marriages that will be represented in this room Jesus, ARCF lays our marriages down at your feet. You're the only one who can lead us into all truth. You're the only one who can enrapture us with your sacrificial love so that we would turn around and love each other really well. Jesus, for those of us who are single right now, who are single again, um, we really, I, I really do ask, God, that you'd light a fire under us to see every opportunity as sacred. God, do not allow us to be tempted by the enemy to think that there's anything going on in our life that means we sit on the sidelines of the kingdom of God. God, for those of us who have never before believed your gospel, I ask that you grant salvation today. God, change our hearts that we would trust you and love you, maybe for the very first time. We thank you for your goodness. We cannot thank you enough for your sacrificing love toward us. In the beautiful name of Jesus, we pray. God's people said, amen. Remember to cap grab a copy of the book if you're interested in that book. It's on that back table. Love you guys. Have a great week.